Okay, hello, hi, it's me again. I wrote this episode in October, last October, while I was sitting in my little Brooklyn apartment. It was raining so much that it was flooding, my roof was leaking, and I sat down and just kind of wrote the first draft all at once. And since then, I've been chipping away at it and sitting with it. And what I am really, really conscious of now is that this does not fit with what I usually do here on Poetry Says. I'm very aware of that. I have decided to put it out here anyway. I think it is probably for about four to six people. But I wanted to put it out here because if you are one of those four to six people, it's really, really for you. I know I have many more people than that who listen, and that is a huge honor. And I know that many of you listen on the first day that the episode is up, and that always just makes me feel so, so loved and so special. Uh, it means more than I can say, really. And so know that I have thought that through before deciding to put this up on here. You'll know in the first two minutes if this is for you or not, and you have my absolute unequivocal permission to just jump out whenever you feel like, you know what, I don't really want to hear any more of this. That's like completely fine. This is not a poetry story. This is a me story. It's a story about me. Nothing bad happens. But if you are a member of my immediate or extended family, I would just appreciate it so much if you would skip this one and come back next week. Uh, yeah. The last thing I'll say is that podcast episodes, I feel, are always a little bit like messages in a bottle. I really hope that this one finds the people that it needs to. Thank you so much, so much for listening. Regular programming will resume next week. But for now, here goes. It started when I was 28. It went on for over a decade. the person I wanted to spend the rest of my life with when we were both really young. I wasn't just young in years. I was about as inexperienced as it is possible to be while still being part of the world in a small Australian city. It was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. And the last thing I expected. What I expected was to grow up and move to Sydney, where I would live with an older woman and a reasonable number of cats. I was so sure of this future, I had already decided on the exact house where we would live. It was this old brick place, set down from street level, overgrown with wisteria, 
in a quiet part of Kirribilli, where I assumed we would be able to afford a house. We would live there, and I would write, and we would have cats. As I said, I was young. I didn't understand anything about real estate. The boy was the last thing I expected. He was so beautiful. We were so young. All the questions about how we'd actually spend the rest of our lives seemed very far away. Too far away to worry about. I worried about more immediate problems, like my uni assignments, and when I was going to become a famous writer, and how I could get us out of our small Australian city. I derailed myself often with worries like these, and wasted monumental amounts of time. I had time to waste. When we did get out of the small Australian city and moved to the larger Australian city that isn't Sydney, I continued to worry about the immediate problems. But something else had crept in. I was 28, and there was a new problem that was starting to eat at me. Especially at night, when I woke up somewhere around 3am, it crowded out all the other worries. What was I going to do about the kid thing? The kid thing. My emotions have been described by a professional as disorganised. I tend to feel things many years late or many years early. As I'm writing this, a part of me is grieving the death of my father. My father, who is still very much alive. At 28, an age that is arguably far too early, I was already obsessed with the question of whether I should or could or wanted to or didn't want to have kids. When I say obsessed, I mean it in the true sense. This was the kind of obsession that made me difficult to be around. I remember bringing up the question of kids with a friend's girlfriend around that time. She was only a few years older than me, in the middle of a perfectly good house party and ruining her night. At work, I would study the women around me, those with kids and those without, trying to gauge how old and how happy or unhappy they were. Whenever I met any older woman, I would immediately try to figure out whether she had kids, and if so, what age she'd been when she had her first. At 28, I was sure that if I just asked the right person the right question, I could resolve this and move on with my life. The problem was I was burning through people to ask, and no one had anything like a satisfying or definitive answer. Still, I was sure it was fixable. I booked in to see the free counsellor at work. This poor woman, who was just trying to get through another day soothing burned-out administrators, looked at me with a mix of compassion and confusion when I tried to outline my reasons for the appointment. What do I do if I want to have kids? When do I need to decide by... Is my time running out? I feel like maybe I will want kids one day, but also I worry that if I have kids, I'll never be able to cope. I mean, I can barely cope as it is. But if I don't have kids, everyone will be disappointed in me. My partner's an only child. 
His mum will hate me. My mum will hate me. Everyone will hate me. I don't know what to do. She said, how old are you? 28. You're so young. You have so much time. She was trying to comfort me. But what I heard was, this isn't going to get better anytime soon. This is going to keep gnawing at you for years. And it didn't get better. Every night I woke up, somewhere around 3am, and on my way to the bathroom, the same thought would snag me. What about the kid thing? Every night, the same thought. What about the kid thing? Every single night without fail. Around this time, I started listening to a podcast I still listen to today. It's two guys old friends, who talk to each other every week about everything and nothing. When the show started, they were both newish dads. I listened with forensic attention to everything they had to say about what that was like. What was good, what was bad, what was hard, what was easy. The way they made it sound, I thought, maybe one day I could be a dad. What's this? Tower. What kind of towel? Super towel. Super towel. Get the super towel. Get the super boy. Super clean, right? Clean. That's super boy. Super, super clean. Super wet. But it didn't get better. I went to work and came home and cleaned the house and had friends over and went to the gym and had coffee and bought outfits I didn't realise I looked bad in and worried and worried and worried about the kid thing. Years passed like this. Five of them. In 2016, I was 33, or as I thought of it, almost 35. That year, the boy and I went travelling. We went to London, Paris, Venice, Florence, Malta, Switzerland and eventually New York. In every single one of these locations, I spent more time than I could ever admit to you in a quietly desperate state, worrying about the kid thing. In our London apartment, by the lake in Zurich, by the Venice canals. Crying about it, last thing I expected boy patiently listening, both of us sitting high on an Italian mountainside looking out over the Mediterranean. The kid thing. The kid thing. It wasn't getting better. In fact, it was getting worse. I was getting older. Time was running out. We've all been told the equation. After about 35, a woman's fertility doesn't just decline. It falls off a cliff. I believed in that. And when I would hear something that suggested otherwise, somehow that didn't feel good either. Phrases I'd read in late night Google sessions, 
or that doctors had said to me, or that friends' doctors had said to them, lodged and repeated in my brain. You want to decide sooner rather than later. It's easier if you have them on the early side. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. So here I sit on my ticking biological clock, and the only thing I've known in my entire life is that I want to have a child. Don't remind me. It was probably, no, it was the right thing to do at the time. So what do you do? I'm going to have a baby. What? On a random day, that year we were overseas, I was wandering in Central Park and, as usual, listening to a podcast. I was also, in the same droning way I had been for years by this point, worrying about the kid thing. This podcast was vaguely spiritual, vague spirituality being something I was depending on more and more as the 3am, what about the kid thing, dread cycle continued. The podcaster was giving someone advice about decision making. At some point, he said something like, the reason you're thinking so hard about this is it's not an easy question to answer. This statement is so simple, it sounds stupid. It is kind of stupid. But on that particular day in Central Park, for a few minutes, it actually helped. That was the first moment of relief I remember feeling in years. Because not only was I worried about the kid thing, I was furious at myself for being so worried about the kid thing. No one else seemed as worried about the kid thing as me. None of my friends, no one in my family, not even last thing I expected boy. More than feeling stuck, indecisive and obsessed, what I felt most of all was separate from the human race. Everyone else seemed to be able to accept whatever decisions they'd made about the kid thing and take the results completely in their stride. This was as true for the podcasters as it was for the friends I was cornering at perfectly good house parties. I felt the way I do on planes. No one here is as worried as they should be. Can't they all see that we're strapped into a metal tube, hurtling through the dark at a speed that could rip us all to shreds? Why is no one else panicking? I got even older. Everyone did. Even the kids belonging to the podcasters got older. Then I hit 36. Wrote a poem Sent it all the way from home Said I felt a little vacant Just like standing all alone 36 was when I was going to know. I knew this because my older sister had had her first baby at 36. Also because 36 was just after 35, so my fertility would be in the process of falling off its cliff. And because 36 was a full eight years after I'd started worrying about the kid thing. I knew I wouldn't be worrying about it for a decade. That would be ridiculous. 36 was definitely when this would all resolve itself. I was confident. I was desperate. On the day of my 36th birthday, 
Last thing I expected Boyd drove me to Abbotsford Convent, where I'd signed up to do a meditation class. Again, vague spirituality was one of the few things getting me from day to day. As he pulled up to drop me off, I burst into tears. I was 36, I was finally 36, and I still didn't know. How could I still not know? Last thing I expected boy was patient. He is always patient. His patience is one of the many qualities that make me think about what an exceptional father he'd be. He'd heard all this a hundred times, a hundred ways. It always boiled down to the same thing. I just don't know. I just don't know. I just don't know. He listened again. He waited for me to stop crying. I stopped crying. I got out of the car. But by the time the tune was done A whole crowded up and gone And there's something freezing at my heels That I don't care to know It may be that I'm reaching absolute zero. The next day I woke up and I was still 36. And I still didn't know. Impossibly, time started up again. Impossibly, it didn't get better. It didn't get better at 37. I had some remaining hope for 38, but it didn't get better then either. By this point, I was fucking crazy. I was looking for anything to distract myself. If I could handle drugs, this is where I would have overdosed. If I wasn't blessed with such crushing hangovers, this is where I would have drank myself to liver failure. What I came up with as a substitute was a surprisingly effective mix of overwork, overcommitment, people-pleasing, and obsession with unpleasable people. I went hard. My hair started falling out. I had mouth ulcers. I was always at the doctor, describing new varieties of pain. They tested, monitored, and scanned everything I pointed to, never finding anything properly wrong. Blood was drawn, ultrasound wands were stuck inside me, urine was tested, chest x-rays were completed, specialists were consulted. Occasionally, my doctor would ask me if I was stressed about anything. I would laugh and say something like, yeah, work's pretty busy. I look back on that time now and understand that I was driven not just by panic about the not knowing, but also by shame. I was ashamed that I still hadn't figured this out. I felt I'd used up all the goodwill of everyone around me. My patient partner, my patient friends, even the patient people I was paying to listen to me. I was sick of hearing myself say the same things and come to the same lack of conclusion. I was sick of setting a new deadline, 
by which time I definitely know, then watching that deadline pass. I was sick of myself. And I was bloody lonely. Because by this point, many of the friends who'd seemed to have doubts at least somewhat similar to mine had started having kids. They would tell me they were pregnant, and I would say, wow, that's amazing, and carefully make all the right noises. Then I would go home and think, no, God, no, don't leave me. Don't leave me here. But they were leaving. On the rare occasions I got to see these friends after they became parents, I would marvel that these people, who had seemed so full of doubt, the same doubt I had, were now just doing it. It was as if they'd simply unbuckled themselves, got up from their seat in economy, walked into the cockpit, and started flying the goddamn plane. I was crazy. And getting crazier. I knew I was crazy, but I would stop all that overwork, overcommitment, and dedication to the unpleasable for nothing. Not the bald patch, not the ulcers, not the doctor's visits, not the worried looks from last thing I expected boy, who later told me he was convinced I was headed for a heart attack. When I finally hit the ground, it wasn't even a satisfying crash. It was an emergency landing that kills some of the passengers, maims others, and lets a random selection walk away unscathed. I had thought to include poetry in this episode, really as an exercise in legitimising its place in the feed, but the fact is, the poets were completely useless to me. I might have included Rachel Zucker's Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, which ends with these lines. We're going to St. Vincent's Hospital, where Dr. Magano will put the KY-covered wand inside me and tell us if these past nine weeks have yielded a fetal heartbeat, which will change everything, nothing. But Rachel Zucker already had children by the time she wrote that poem. I remembered her talking to one of her guests on Commonplace about the idea of motherhood as a writing retreat, of using being a mother as a structure for writing, of including everything from the sleep deprivation to the kids' toilet habits, and wanting to scream. I read Harwood's In the Park and felt a chill. They have eaten me alive. I read everything Kenyon had written and found nothing. No mention anywhere of wanting a child, of not wanting a child, of ever really thinking about it. I read Sexton's The Black Art and saw what I thought everyone thought of me. As if cycles and children and islands weren't enough. And you might reasonably ask, did wanting to be a poet have something to do with this indecision? The thought that your writing would be interrupted by motherhood? But the question of how much I'd be able to write never had anything to do with it. I never wrote that much anyway. I was already a failing poet. Being a mother wasn't going to make me worse. It would have been simpler if the kid thing and the poet thing were related. But they weren't. I didn't think about poems. I thought about morning sickness, birth, pain, tearing sleep deprivation, breastfeeding, 
postnatal depression. I thought about the jokes I'd heard male comedians make about deflated post-breastfeeding breasts, the jokes female comedians made about post-birth vaginas. I thought about my pathetic vanity. I thought about being called mum, about strollers, first days at school, first words. I thought about graduation assemblies, teenage bedrooms, about being the kind of mum I hadn't had. I thought about seeing last thing I expected boy's eyes in my child's face. I thought a lot about the pictures of him as a little boy on the farm with his gorgeous grin, his beautiful dimples. Who's this? Jeremiah. One of the vaguely spiritual writer podcasters I was into around this time put out a little book that probably sold a million copies which I bought and have now given away and forgotten the name of. I don't remember anything from the book except for the phrase, acceptance is a small, quiet room. I was starting to find that to be horribly true. There was not going to be a moment of shining clarity. There would be no satisfying conclusion. There was nothing dramatic or cathartic about it. There was no narrative no hero's journey. It was as boring as it was difficult. I had to accept what I wanted and what I didn't want. What I wanted was to be loved and accepted. I wanted those things very much. I wanted to be normal. I wanted to want normal things. What I didn't want was to have a baby. Last thing I expected, Boy and I have about 500 running jokes. One of them goes like this. Alice has an overwhelming fear that one day she will be forced, against her will, to get on the ship that goes from Hobart to Antarctica. Not for any good reason. Just because the people who run the ship that goes from Hobart to Antarctica know how scared Alice is of having to go to Antarctica. How much she hates boats, waves feeling trapped, and being cold. So the joke is, whenever Antarctica comes up in conversation, I pretend I'm scared of being kidnapped and forced to go to Antarctica, that I'm genuinely afraid I'll have to white-knuckle my way through days of roiling ocean, just to end up in a frozen wasteland, which, while surely awe-inspiring and definitely a -a once-in-a-lifetime experience, and obviously like nothing else on Earth, isn't a place I feel I personally need to see. It's a hilarious bit. Going to Antarctica seems like an amazing thing to do. But I know for certain that it's not for me. Other people can go to Antarctica. Other people who are maybe braver, maybe crazier. I don't really know what type of person should go to Antarctica, if I'm honest. Do they need bravery? a certain brand of craziness, or something else. If I had to make a call here, I'd say people who go to Antarctica should at least be people who want to go to Antarctica. I want you to do it because I said so. Do you hear me? 
Well, when you're a mother, you can be mean. All right, you can do that. Tell Carmelina I said it's okay. I love you, sweetheart. Daddy will call you later. Bye-bye. Sometimes I don't believe what I hear myself saying. I thought it would never end. A decade in, when I was still waking up at 3 a.m. and thinking, what about the kid thing? I thought that was going to be it for the rest of my life. I thought, I will never stop worrying about this. I will be 60 and still worrying about this. I will never feel like I've made the right decision. And then it ended. What I want to give you here is a satisfying conclusion, something with a clear shape to it. What this podcaster I've been listening to for over a decade would call a turns out. But what actually happened was it ended by fading. The same way love, grief, or a long illness sometimes ends by fading. The turns out was that none of the talking, thinking, crying, Praying, medicating, meditating, overworking, or measuring myself against other people and their choices made any difference. Not the ultrasounds, not the bad outfits, not the vibe-ruining conversations with friends' girlfriends, not the detective work on how happy other women really were, not the tearful conversation on the Italian hillside, not even the few moments of relief, like that day in Central Park. It turns out I could have skipped all that, If you pressed me on this, and I assume you would, I'd point to two things that I think brought about the end. One concrete, one less so. The less concrete thing was the slow-growing understanding that my choices were not the only thing everyone else thought about 24-7. That in fact, no one really cared what I did with my time on Earth, as long as I seemed happy enough and didn't cause too much trouble. No one was going to come to my door and take me away for not having kids. No one was going to give me more love, more acceptance, or a medal if I did have kids. Or maybe there would have been more love and more acceptance. But I started to see I didn't want it if it had to come that way. The concrete thing was the time I got to spend with one particular little guy, my baby nephew. For a couple of years there, when he was around one or two years old, I got to be with him every week. I got to feed and walk and bathe and wipe and change and attempt to entertain him. And I got to feel what I assume is a tiny percentage of the love parents talk about. Love that's not like other love. Love that's not conditional. That's a one-way deal. Love that feels different and better and harder and sweeter than any of the other love out there. It's a horrible cliche, but it's also true. When he calls me Arnie Al, it's just about my favourite thing in the world. So I got to spend that time with him, and I got to watch myself and see what I was like. And I was exactly how I thought I would be which was a pretty decent Arnie Al, 
a sort of semi-parental figure who never really has to do any of the difficult stuff or make any truly hard decisions. Someone who could keep a little kid fed and get him to sleep and catch him at the bottom of a slide and hold him when he was crying. And I got to see something that is still, even now, hard to admit and hard to write down. I really didn't want to be any more than that. You know, somehow I feel it isn't quite this simple. You know, for one thing, it doesn't always happen the first time. It's not what they told us in high school. On some level, I'd known this the whole time. I'd known it at 28. But I also knew, or thought I knew, that while this was a totally acceptable and understandable thing for other people to feel, that in my case, it was completely unacceptable. Not wanting kids was going to cost me everything. I just knew it was going to cost me everything. It was back when I was very young It seems to me it was the year before I first turned to one I'm only a few years into this new territory. This big, blank, snowy expanse past the crash site, past the seemingly endless forest of what about the kid thing. But so far, it hasn't cost me anything. And it's not that I'm suddenly content every day, far from it. Or that I even really understand how I got to this place. It's just that when I look for that worry, it's just not there anymore. It just isn't there. I've wanted to tell you all this for ages. I'm not really sure why. Probably it's ego, hoping I can help someone. But I'm pretty sure I can't. I know any time I've heard a story like this, where someone figures it out one way or the other, and has or doesn't have kids as a result, I've tended to think, sure, that's fine for you. But that's not my story. I'm different. My situation is different and difficult in a very unique, unsolvable way. Fuck you and your dumb story. If you're thinking that, you're right. Things are different for you. I don't know anything about what you've been through or what you're going through now. I'm just a voice in your headphones. And who knows if I'm even as comfortable with all this as I think I am on the day I'm recording this. All I can say is, I know how much it hurts. Spending every conscious moment, maybe not always actively, but somewhere in the background, carrying this question in your thoughts. I know how much it hurts to want so badly to put it down, to know it's not making any difference, all that thinking, and to not be able to stop. I know. I really do know. Thank you so much for listening to that. I I guess what I want to say here at the end is um, if you are one of those four to six people that that uh, that you connected with what I was saying there 
um, and you want to talk to someone, then feel free to write to me. I promise not to come at you with solutions or opinions or even anything. You, I, I won't even write back to you if you don't want me to. Um, I'm a good listener. I don't have many skills, but I am a good listener, I think. I've been told that by other people. Uh, yeah. I am, I am thinking of you, this imaginary person who, who I wanted this to be for. It's been a funny process editing this, putting it together after sitting with it for so long. Like, what is that? Like four, four months. So yeah, it's a, it's a good chunk of time to be thinking about a podcast episode. Um, and I've been thinking about making it for, I don't know, at least a year, maybe more. Um, yeah, but bringing it together this week, it felt it felt kind of special because I've had a lot of interactions with my beautiful nieces, 17 and 20, um, and also Tom's nephew. Um, we got some of them moving to Melbourne to go to uni, and the nieces were here to go to the Taylor Swift concert. I still have a little pile of, of glitter on the mantelpiece over there as evidence that they were here. And um, yeah, a lot of phone calls that start with, Auntie Al, can you... Um... <laughs> and a lot, a lot of driving around. <laughs> Some fairly hectic Taylor Swift related traffic uh, to get them to where they needed to go and all that sort of stuff and um yeah I just had a couple of moments where I was just like god this feels so good I love this I just I love being Annie Al I really do I think I'm pretty like I'm not like I said I don't have many skills but I think um I think I might actually be quite a good auntie <laughs> just quietly um None of my family members are listening. Are you? So uh, they can't contradict me. I just get to say that and I get to be right. Okay. Well, I think that's all I have to say. Um, as I mentioned, regular programming will resume next week. And yeah, look, I don't have that many stories, all right? So you're pretty like safe from, from a, a repeat performance of this kind of thing. But... Um, if you did listen and you listened all the way through, it means the world to me. It really, really does. It's, yeah, it's been a long time coming and I'm, I feel, um, well, I never know how I'm going to feel until I put something out, but I'm, I'm pretty confident that it's going to feel good to hit publish on this one. Thank you for listening. I'll be back next week. <laughs>